We are continuing our series uh, on learning to love God's word. And what we've been doing uh, during this series is sort of looking at the prophets, right? They are the conveyors, if you will, of God's word. And so we have looked at uh, a passage in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, and in Lamentations. And this morning, we come to the book of Ezekiel. And just for a little bit of frame of reference, I want to talk about sort of where we are in the story of God's people, even though I know most of us uh, in this room this morning are very familiar. Uh, God called a people to himself through this man named Abraham and his family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had a number of sons. Uh, Those sons eventually and all of their family end up in Egypt and they multiply. And over the course of 400 years, Uh, They're there, they're brought into slavery, and then God sends his servant Moses to rescue his people out of Egypt. And so they are led into the wilderness for a number of years. And then ultimately Joshua takes God's people and brings them into Canaan where they are to take that land and drive the other nations out. But they fail to do that well and they start to rebel against God. But some time passes and God anoints a king, Saul, and then he anoints another another king, David. And David's uh, son, Solomon, comes to the throne. And after Solomon, the kingdom sort of splits into two, a northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And there, of course, are issues there as well. Uh, Sort of around 722, the Assyrians come in, and they defeat the northern kingdom, and they are led into exile. And then a number of years later, the south also is put into exile in Babylon around 586. A little bit before that, Ezekiel was led into exile in Babylon. And there he primarily ministered to the Jews that were exiled with him in Babylon. But by extension, his prophecies made it back to the Jews that were still in Jerusalem. And there's essentially two messages in the book of Ezekiel. The first message is really to his brothers and sisters back home. Basically, the message of repent or you will be joining us here in exile. But then the second half of the book sort of shifts messages. It shifts a focus to God's judgment against the nations that were surrounding Israel and that a day was ahead where God would dwell again with his people where he would abide with them, where he would restore them, where he would renew them, where he would, in a sense, recreate them. And so we come to the text that we are looking at this morning, Ezekiel chapter 37, as Lauren comes up and reads for us. The scripture reading this morning comes from Ezekiel chapter 37, Verses 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. 
and I will lay sinews on you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let me pray as we look at this. Father, some of us are here this morning, maybe feeling words similar to what were just read, that um, we're feeling hopeless, broken, dejected. And I pray that through your words, you would breathe life into us, that you would breathe life into this church, that you would breathe life into this community. Uh, Help us to see, to know, and to love Jesus better as a result of this time together this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Death and hopelessness is one of the main things that we see in this passage. And it is a theme that is all around us all of the time. This summer, I had the privilege of taking students to Israel. And one of the places that we went uh, was the Golan Heights in it's interesting when you're there, you can basically look, uh, you know, right into Syria. And while I was there, I sort of reflecting on the fact that over the last number of years, close to half of a million people have died there in Syria as a result of the conflict that is there. It's so bad, they've, they've run out of places to bury people. And so you'll see headstones uh, in public parks, and you'll see them just in empty lots, anywhere that you can find space put a, a headstone. And we could talk about all the other things that are sort of going on right now, the, the mass shootings, the sort of political divide that causes hopelessness. There's a death of a student already at Emory University this year. We struggle. We struggle with death. We struggle with loneliness. I do think that we have a hard time really understanding the gravity of death, but not hopelessness. Because that is all around us all the time. I think we get it to a degree a little bit better. And this is what the Israelites were dealing with when Ezekiel has this vision that he has. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to look at how 
hopelessness in particular really is sort of a memory of death. That hopelessness comes as a result of death. And that hope is a memory actually of resurrection. So hopelessness as a memory of death and hope uh, as a memory of resurrection. So Israel here is completely dejected. They are under Babylonian rule because their hearts have turned away. At the beginning of Ezekiel, we read sort of the state of Israel. This is what God says. This is chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. He said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, They will know that a prophet has been among them. The Babylonians had basically destroyed every part of their way of life. There's no temple. There's no sacrifices. There's no spiritual leadership. Jerusalem has fallen. Many of their families had been killed. They are alone. Their hearts are dry and their hearts are dead. And verse 11 in our passage is a very clear interpretation of what is going on. He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now I wonder if you have ever felt this way. Or maybe you have had friends that are feeling this way now. Or maybe you have family members that feel this brokenness, this loneliness, this dryness in their hearts. To where they would even maybe say to you, it goes down into my bones. The hurt. And we struggle in knowing what to do with those feelings. And knowing what to do with feeling cut off, with loneliness, with hopelessness. Dan Allender, uh, Christian author, psychologist, has been really helpful to me and to my ministry over the last number of years. And he has this quote that's in your handout. In the healing path with what we do with this hopelessness. He says that life often leaves us feeling powerless. We feel helpless to affect change that will improve our situation. We can, but that won't change our circumstances. We may plead, but our anguish seems to fall on deaf ears. Eventually, such a sense of powerlessness results in apathy and despair. When there's nothing that we can do to change our situation, then it is normal to give up. It's easier to quit trying and to grow numb than to hope and be disappointed time and time again. And the fact of the matter is is that this is Israel in this situation without hope. And it is us when we do not have hope as well. It's easier to quit trying and to grow numb than to hope and be disappointed time and time again. And so we turn to ambivalence. A lot of us do. My wife and I are finally, uh, we've finally gotten around to season three of Stranger Things. I have a particular interest of it because it's filmed here in Atlanta. Hawkins Lab, as you probably know, is about a mile down the road from here. It's owned by Emory University. If you're into the show and you haven't been there yet, you need to uh, not go right after church, but sometime in the next couple weeks to go see Hawkins Lab. They keep it open all of the time. But it's interesting that in some ways, like every season has been the same, right? There's these fun kids, they're having a good time. And then uh, evil, this evil force, this evil thing sort of rears its head. And there's this crisis, like in any good story. 
and you don't know what's going to happen as a result of this crisis. Is evil going to win? And as I've thought about it, like what we appreciate about Stranger Things is actually, I think, something we appreciate about a lot of shows, especially the last decade. We love sad shows. We love dark shows. You look at probably the the most popular 10 shows of the last decade, and they're incredibly, incredibly dark. And sometimes I wonder, why am I watching this? What is it about the, the feeling of sadness and darkness and hopelessness that I love? Why do I keep watching them? Why are we drawn to it as a people? And I think that one of the reasons for that is because we relate to it. We say, yes, I feel that sadness. I feel that darkness and that hopelessness. And sometimes I don't know what is going to happen and who is going to win. But actually, as I really start to dig down the reason why I'm drawn to it, and maybe the reason why you are drawn to shows like that as well, is for the chance that life will win. That, that next show, there's going to be that turning point that happens. That there's going to be redemption for the characters. That the unjust are finally going to get punished. And that the just are finally going to be rewarded. I am drawn to looking into darkness for the chance to see light. I mean, think that if the director said to you at the beginning of any show, yes, everyone is going to die, no one is going to watch a show like that. We want the redemption. We want the restoration. uh, restoration. We long for things to be made right, and this is why this prophecy from Ezekiel is so compelling, because it gives us hope. Hope arrives. Look again at verses 12 through 14. Prophesy and say to them, the bones, thus says the Lord, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. Hope has arrived, and hope ultimately is a memory of, of the resurrection. And let me unpack what I mean by that a little bit. I struggle with resurrection. I think for a, a lot of reasons. I've been at Emory, been in and around Emory since 2007. Campus minister uh, there with RUF since 2013. And I struggle with supernaturalism. Maybe as a result of being there, maybe just living in the West, right? Everything needs to have an empirical reason for the way that it works, for its existence. And so I just struggle with the idea of anything supernatural. Everything should have an explanation to it. Our culture makes it difficult to be open to the fact that God breaks into the natural order to do things, to work change in our hearts. That's a supernatural reality. And the fact of the matter is, When it comes to scripture, if there's a possibility of one single supernatural thing happening, then really any of it could happen. But there are other reasons why I struggle with resurrection as well. And that is because I try to find my own ways to breathe life into myself. And the fact is that our culture wants hope to originate from inside of ourselves instead of it coming from outside. It's captured well by John Lennon's song, Imagine. Came out in 1971. I'm sure these lyrics are very familiar, but listen just to the beginning of what he writes. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. 
Above us only sky, imagine all the people living for today. And as you hear the rest of that song, or maybe even hear those words, you realize that Lenin's path to world peace and the gospel's path to peace are very different. They are worlds apart, actually. Lenin says that it is about living for today, and the gospel says that it is living for a hope that comes from the future and reaches into today. Some of you are familiar with this saying, but there's a, there was a Christian French existentialist playwright, writer, philosopher, whose name was Gabriel Marcel. He served in World War I, and he lived through World War II. And um, he wrote a number of things, but I think my, my favorite thing that he ever said, that he ever wrote, as he was talking about hope, is that he said that hope is a lot like a memory of the future. Hope is a memory of the future. Now, what is he getting at? Well, I want you to think about that. All of us in this room right now have been shaped by things in our past. Good things, bad things. No one in this room has escaped bad things, right? And so all of us have been shaped by these things that have brought us up to the minute that we walk through this door. They have, they have shaped who we are. We're going to call those things memories of the past. They've formed part of who we are, all of who we are. Good and bad things, and again, none of us have escaped the bad thing. And when we, if we were to think about the fact that the, the memory of the world, when you look at it historically, is a memory ultimately of death. None of us escape that reality. And so the question, in a lot of ways, is what could the only antidote be to a memory of death? To the brokenness and the messiness and the hopelessness that a lot of us have experienced. Well, according to the gospel, it has to be a memory of what is ahead. And that is the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ. We have not experienced that on this side of Jesus' coming. But it is a sure thing. Not only because Jesus has said it, but even because Ezekiel has said it. Look again at the very end. You shall know I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Or in verse 13. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves, not if. Resurrection is a memory of the future. And that is hope. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, if what I'm saying is not true, listen to what he says. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if he has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now listen to what he's saying. If the resurrection isn't true, then there is no hope. There is no faith. There is no memory of the future and everything that you are doing. What we are doing right here, all the songs that we sang, this Lord's table that we are coming to in a little bit, it is all in vain. It is all futile. And the question is, do we take the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, And the fact that God breathes life into us through his word, do we take it seriously? 
does it affect the way that we live and the way that we love other people? Christianity lives or dies on the reality of the resurrection, on the reality of what Ezekiel brings us this morning. Ezekiel is prophesying that there is only one way, ultimately, to lift people out of the hopelessness that they were living in, and that is to believe in the promise that God would give them life through his word. And I want you to see that that reality is both spiritual and it is physical. The bones come together. We read that sinew comes together with sinew. The bones are connected together. But then Ezekiel must prophesy again. He says, no, 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 now breathe life into it. The resurrection and the way that it has entered into the world even now for Christians has a spiritual component to it, but it has a physical component to it as well. And that is through the Spirit and the Word. A couple of years ago, I was reading this great article in the Wall Street Journal. It was around Easter time, and the whole article written by Father James Martin. Uh, I'm going to read this. It's in your handout as well. The whole article was exploring why do so many Americans resonate so well with Christmas? Like, like nobody really has a hard time with Christmas, but why do so many of us have a hard time with Easter? They're both big Christian holidays. They're both celebrated Why is Christmas given so much more weight than Easter? And I want to read what he says in that article to you. And you can follow along if you would like in your handout. He says this. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you can go on living your life while perhaps admiring Jesus the man, appreciating his example, and even putting into practice some of his teachings. At the same time, you can set aside those teachings that you disagree with or that make you uncomfortable, say, forgiving your enemies praying for your persecutors, living simply or helping the poor. You can set them aside because he's just another teacher. A great one to be sure, but just one of many. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, however, everything changes. In that case, you cannot set aside any of his teachings because a person who rises from the grave, who demonstrates his power over death, and who has definitively proven his divine authority needs to be listened to. What that person says demands a response. In short, the resurrection makes a claim on you. And as you know, we do not like demands placed upon us. And so, of course, we love a little baby who cannot uh, put demands on us at Christmas, but we struggle with the God of Easter because if it is true that he was risen from the dead, there are demands that go along with it. And so what is the resurrection's claim on you? Look again at verses 13 through 14. You shall know, you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. And listen to this, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it declares the Lord. Twice Ezekiel shows us that you shall know that I am the Lord. That is God breathing life into the dead leads people to their highest good, which is to know God. Their highest good is to know God. But notice how he does it. He says to Ezekiel, prophesy. In other words, speak with your mouth. 
These words that I'm giving you speak with your mouth into the bones. Have the wind commanded, we read in verse 9. Say to the breath in verse 9, to enter. God will put his spirit in the people because he has spoken his word. And so, does that sound familiar to you? That the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there is this singular message that God creates life through his word. It is the reason why we are doing this series of the beauty and wonder of God's word. And what is his word ultimately? Is it not, as we see in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, and then verse 14, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, in other words, the flesh that developed on the bones... And the breath that was breathed into the bodies, that word became flesh and dwelt among us and lived a life of obedience that we could not live and loved his father in a way that we could not. That word gave up his life on the cross so that ours would be spared. That word was raised from the dead to conquer death so that we would be raised with him. It is crazy to think that this is how God rescues people, how he, he brings rebels back to himself so that instead of calling them a rebel, he calls them son and daughter. And God is asking you in the midst of a hopeless world in a dark world this son daughter can these bones live god does not directly ask his people a ton of questions from genesis to revelation but when he asks a specific question to us we need to listen very carefully adam and eve where are you it's a question that invites adam and eve to look inside their hearts and say wait a minute where am i cain Why are you so angry? That was an invitation to Cain to not just give a trite answer, but to look into his heart and say, yeah, why am I so angry? He says the same question to Jonah. Jonah, why are you so angry? Here to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, can these bones live? And I ask you in town church, The same question that God invites us all to ask, can these bones live? Can the darkness and the hopelessness that you are experiencing, that your family is experiencing, that your friends are experiencing, that this world is experiencing, can they live? Or do we do like Allender says and just move into ambivalence because it hurts a lot less than disappointment over and over and over again? What would your answer to God be if he asked you, son, daughter, can these bones live? Can hopelessness be crushed? My kids are seven. Gregory and Sophia, they're not able to watch Stranger Things yet. um, Or probably half the shows that I watch. Um, Their stories are very different than mine. They partake of, of different stories. They normally have sort of happier 
endings than a lot of the shows or movies that I watch, but they still contain crisis. They still contain sadness because even a child gets that a happy ending isn't sweet unless it redeems something, unless it fixes something. It's not much of a story if it went something along the lines of that there were two bunnies that lived in a town with no uh, threat to themselves, and they had lots of perfect children that never had any problems and nothing ever went wrong, the end, right? We wouldn't read a story like that to our children because it's not reality. It's not the way the world works, and we like rescue. We like heroes. Children's stories still point to what we long for, resolution, resurrection, Redemption, renewal, recreation. A few years ago, a good friend of our family had a stroke while playing tennis. They rushed him to the hospital. Um, I was, was asked to go visit them, and so I go there, and I, I sat next to uh, <clears throat> this wife and his three daughters and son-in-law and grandchildren were in the room. I wasn't going to recover, and it was only a matter of time until... He passed. And I remember later sort of thinking about that experience and thinking to myself, the difference of what I said and what I didn't say. And I want to tell you what I didn't say. What I did not say to this family who were believers, what I did not say to them is this. I hope you enjoyed him while he was here. I hope you had a good time. I hope you maximized every minute, every moment that you had with him because He is not long for this world. No, I didn't say that. Instead, we went to God's word, which breathes life, even in the situation where death and hopelessness was present right there in the room with us. And we read the end of 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The hope of Ezekiel's vision is the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And living in light of that memory, of that eternity, that says that God will make all things new, all things right, all things good, all things full, will ultimately and finally bring shalom. Living with that changes you to the the core of who you are, how you spend your time and your money how you treat others, how you love, how you process the brokenness in your own life and the sin that abides there, how you live with trauma. And I will echo something that Allender has taught me, uh, Dan Allender, the author, that no one escapes trauma. Do you believe in a God who breathes life into dead things? Who brought life to your hopelessness through his Son? And I guess one of my questions as we close here is where right now in your life, in your family, where are you experiencing hopelessness? Where are you experiencing a type of death? Is it in your marriage? Is it with your kids? Is it in your job? Is it with your friendships? With those things that make you feel cut off, that make you feel lonely, that make you feel crushed, Do you have a memory of the future? A future and a memory of the resurrection to come. 
And do you believe that your bones, which were once dried up, have had life poured into them if you belong to Jesus through his word? That is the gospel. We were dead. And God has poured life into us through his word, as realized through Jesus. And that's our task this morning, that Ezekiel's vision is realized only in Christ. The life and the breath that was poured out by the Spirit into this valley of dry bones is the work of Jesus in our own hearts and in our own lives and in our families and in this church. He is the Word breathed into you.